thought I would start with that quote. I'm not generally the biggest fan of Emerson, but I, I actually I, I liked this one. Um, I think there's probably some truth to it. But uh, in terms of this topic in general, I think I was going through a couple of, of, of books on my shelf actually just yesterday. And the opening sentences of a few of the books on, on this topic of industrialism, the opening sentences were pretty stupendous, some of the statements they were making. I thought I would capture a couple of them here. One of them said, started off saying, the Industrial Revolution marks the most fundamental transformation of human life in the history of the world. That's a pretty profound statement, isn't it? Uh, the other one started off and said, the Industrial Revolution was the most the single most important development in human history over the past three centuries. And the third one said that the Industrial Revolution was the watershed event in human history, the point where the tide began to turn and go a completely different direction. And I actually did a class on this with some of our high schoolers, and I asked them, uh, we had a whiteboard kind of like this one, and I asked them to think of what had changed about humans' way of life in general over the past 250 years? And just to think of any, any example of something that was one way 250 years ago and is another way today. And we made a list of, of probably 15 or 20 of those things. And every one of them, the Industrial Revolution was the turning point where that changed. And so regardless of whether you know, we're a Christian community, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, I think that when we're dealing with something that is this life transforming and this, this pivotal an event throughout human history, um, we've got to ask ourselves, what kind of an impact did this have on the things that most of us for all of human history have found most dear? Things like the home, the family, uh, the church, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. I'm not going to so much go into a history of the Industrial Revolution as much as look at the roots of it really as a, as a, a cultural and, and finally a spiritual revolution. And so what I want to do is, and, and, and if you are a believer, if you, if you look at the history of industrialization in any culture or nation, you'll see that it, it just about without exception, it traces exactly parallel to secular, secularization in, in those nations and cultures. There's a direct parallel. Um, a French sociologist named Gabriel Lebras once remarked he was doing a study on the decline of religious belief in France, and he said that there was a uh, train station, he said a certain railroad station in Paris, with a magical quality for rural migrants seemed to be divested of their faith the very moment that they set foot in it. He wasn't suggesting that it was truly magical, but he was saying that there was something about the way of life, this, this culture shock, this industrial culture that they stepped into that just really made their, their faith somewhat implausible. It wasn't conducive to it. Peter Berger, in that same study, says it a little more explicitly that modern, industri uh, modern industrial society produced a centrally located sector that is something like a liberated territory with respect to religion. And that really has been the case uh, throughout history. Before I get too far into this, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, deal with a potential curiosity. It's probably become clear by now that I'm going to say some things that are somewhat critical about industrialism, and yet I'm using a, an iPad to go through my slides, and I, I've got a microphone here, and I actually have a phone in my pocket, too, and a truck in the parking lot, so just, just want to give a full disclaimer there. Um, th this is not an indictment on technology, per se. Um, it's not to say that there have been no benefits, you know, from, from the process of industrialization that, that all of us utilize. Um, really, I think the emphasis that I want to propose here is that when the predominant way of life in the West and in this country in particular shifted from an agrarian culture 
to an industrial culture, something very, very good was lost in that process. And so I want to look at it in terms of, of, of the cultural shift uh, more so than necessarily the specifics of technology and so forth. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll get into to some of that here in a bit. But the history of civilization shows that there's, a, there's always kind of a triangle of tension between three aspects of culture. And I've got them up here, but I'm going I'm to use the whiteboard. Um, so I'll just explain what these are briefly. So polity deals with the political realm. And so this is, this is dealing with government rule and uh, state, state power, state control through the use of force. Uh, economy and then society really refers to a culture that is predominantly marked by voluntary human relationships. And what history shows is that a society, a culture that is predominantly based in voluntary human relationships, where that really is the, the fabric and, the, and, 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 the, and the, the priority of that culture, these can sustain almost indefinitely. But at some point, a process occurs where people become seduced by economy. So a type of economy comes to the surface of that culture and, and it begins to pull people apart as each one kind of shifts their attention and focus from the meeting of their needs and, the, and, the, and those of their neighbor to seeking after something for themselves through this, these economic, this, this new market type of culture. But what history shows is that that period of a predominant economy in a culture almost inevitably then gives way to a polity where there is total state control. And that's really where cultures begin to break down and collapse and people feel fragmented and oppressed and so forth. And so I'm going to try this. I'm not, I don't usually use these. but So basically what I'm saying is that this, a society can, can, can persist. I mean, there's examples of it for nearly a thousand years. And then it, at some point becomes predominantly an economy and that inevitably then becomes a polity and then also typically civilizations and cultures that collapse it's on the other side of that and so what I want to do to kind of illustrate this with the time that we have is to look at a couple of historical examples of this process taking place in various forms. And so I want to focus on uh, the process of industrialization in England, which is where the Industrial Revolution began, the mid-1700s. Uh, and then I want to look at the example of America. And then I want to look at the example of, of Rome, where we'll kind of see this whole thing come to fruition. And so we can start with... Uh, with England. So, but the point I'm trying to make here is that essentially wealth becomes, and the pursuit of wealth becomes the bait to pull people out of a predominant society and into a polity. So there's this, what happens is there's, there's this kind of culture-wide envy that begins to pull people apart from relationships. And then the next thing you know, uh, those, those voluntary bonds that once existed, uh, the state becomes the only thing that can really hold those, relationship, those, those individuals together because those voluntary bonds that used to uh, unite them have gone by the wayside through economy. So I'm going to show you some examples of that. Does that make sense to everybody so far? I read a, an account of this process taking place in England and they were describing the England of the Middle Ages. And it said that the independent peasant farmer or craftsman lived and worked on the land and in community, learning and developing skills which enabled him or her to take control over and responsibility for their subsistence needs and those of the family and community in which they lived 
directly from the land and the surrounding countryside. So that was a description of, of, of British culture throughout and, and European culture in general throughout most of the Middle Ages. Uh, I know there were exceptions, but that predominantly is what it was. Um, these farmers at this time, they did not depend upon money to meet their essential needs. Money did exist in the culture, but, you know, and they would sell their surplus uh, for money, but the, the bottom line was they were not dependent upon it for their survival. That, that was not something that was uh, uh, the case for, for, for much of that culture, for much of that period of time. And then at some point, a shift occurred, and uh, global trade, uh, some of the humanistic ideas that came out of the Renaissance began to kind of take hold in the culture, and a market culture began to uh, become predominant, and the fabric of community began to dissolve. And suddenly, their focus with their labor, with the way that they carried out their lives, was not centered in the meeting of the needs of their, themselves and their family and their community, um, but the economy kind of became divorced from care for those that their lives touched. And somebody, a, a, a historian named Somerville, actually, it, it, the, the, the book is called The Secularization of Early Modern England. And so he, he traces the secularization process of England from 1500 to 1700. But actually, as he's describing the secularization process, it, it, we actually see the seeds of industrialism going hand in hand with it. And so the way he describes the, the villages there in pre-industrial England is that what was at the center of most of these villages and communities actually was a church. And it, it kind of represented their shared spiritual beliefs. Uh, and so raising sheep, uh, weaving and spinning wool, making blankets and clothing, growing their own food, making furniture. These all took place within a shared context of, of communal life. And as this market culture began to, to arise, uh, pretty soon that, that fabric started to unravel and you would have uh, merchants you know, merchants would become the primary customers of, of these farmers and these craftsmen. And what would happen is that suddenly there would be a shift where the spinners would be situated in one village and the weavers would be situated in one village and the furniture makers. And they, they began to reorganize on the basis of industry. Then the factory system only exacerbated that because uh, then they all be, what what essentially held them together was the particular factory with which they found their work. And so, what do you think might have happened to the church in that process? It, it once was the center of that culture, and so as it was removed from the center, an industry became the center. The church became marginalized and took a back seat. It, it, it was pushed off to the, to the corner of the culture and became less and less and less significant. And that really ultimately was how the process of secularization in early modern England occurred. It directly paralleled uh, the early industrialization uh, of England. Um, something else that I want to talk about is the movement of enclosure. This was another key factor there in England. And even before the actual enclosure acts, this was a process that had been going on actually for hundreds of years before that um, on a smaller scale even. But so effectively what happened with enclosure, and historians have said that it's impossible to account for the influence and impact of enclosure on Europe. It was a, it was a significant event. And what happened there is that as most of you or some of you may know, Europe was predominantly a feudal society for most of the Middle Ages. It was a feudalist system. And as part of that, there were a great deal of, of what they called common lands. And these common lands were generally farmed by yeoman farmers, uh, uh, peasants, you know, and there was kind of an agreed upon arrangement where 
uh, a noble or whoever was in charge of the, the feudal manor would provide protection and then they would provide farming and, and, and meet the needs of the, of the village. So it was effectively a, a, a self-sufficient subsistence kind of system. Uh, but again, with these, these trends that began to occur throughout Europe with trade and so forth, wool became a top commodity in Europe. It actually became the currency uh, through which uh, England set out to build their empire is through wool. Well, if we're going to have wool, what do we have to have? Sheep. And if we're going to raise sheep, what do we need? Pastures. They need something to eat. And so they, they, they came up with a pretty simple solution for that. This uh, kind of unspoken centuries-long covenant that they had with these peasants and yeoman farmers, they suddenly broke that and began to simply enclose these common lands and just put sheep on those lands. And so what happened in the process is that they drove these people whose, that was their only means of subsistence, they drove them off of these lands and into the cities. So suddenly you had, uh, I think the Queen Elizabeth at that time, went through and made a comment that there are paupers everywhere. I mean, suddenly you had beggars and, and thieves all over the place in, in London and in the cities. Why? Because they had been displaced from the lands, and this was even before the factory system came into being, and so they had no way to support themselves. And so they became thieves, and they became beggars, and there were riots, and it was a, it was a, a terrible situation. Um, the second thing in... Uh, probably the most significant in terms of how industrialization came to be in, in England was the creation of a, a, a central bank. If I was to propose to any of you that I had this new idea for this product that we could mass produce and huge numbers and all you needed was, was a factory and all kinds of state-of-the-art machinery in order to make this happen, uh, you'd look at me and say, okay, how are we going to pay for this? And that was a real problem. But uh, England during that time was seemingly perpetually at war with France, and they were always trying to find a way to get the upper hand. And so uh, there had been a, another shift that had taken place some years, about a decade or so, before the Bank of England came into being, I think in 1694. And... Uh, this revolution, it was called the Glorious Revolution, is really what shifted power in England from the, the monarchy to the parliament. And with that, the financing of wars became kind of the problem of the whole people. It used to be something the king would have to finance, and now it was up to everybody. And so uh, they needed to raise some money. The specific amount was $1.2 million. If we could raise $1.2 million, we could build the kind of military machine to be able to compete with France. And so the, some of the wealthy elites in England pooled together and, and came up with the $1.2 million, loaned it to the British government at 8% interest, and the Bank of England was born. And, but not only was that a benefit to the government of England, uh, they, they began to issue you know, bank notes, and, and uh, there was no expectation that this money would be paid back in, in full but it would be paid back at a guaranteed rate annually, and so there was an annuity uh, system there. But what also happened is that they developed this, this system of credit where they could loan money to private investors for the purpose of building factories and, and, and bringing forth industrialization. So without that central bank to be able to, to, to finance this move towards industrialization, it would have been limited to whatever funds people could kind of pull together, you know, business owners could pull together on their own. And so it's absolutely essential that there be a central bank, and that's been the case. Every country who's ever tried to industrialize and succeeded has done so with a, uh, a, a strong central bank and a, and a tariff, and it's, it's been a huge part of it. So uh, that those kind of came together in order to allow... England to become an industrial nation. So let's shift to America. What was going on in America during this time? Um, well, some of the people had begun to see the writing on the wall over in England. They said, we're not, we're not quite sure we like this new way of life. 
we're not quite sure the promises of escape from drudgery have really come to pass. Um, they started to see this process that I laid out earlier. They started to see that as they became divorced from this land that they used to depend on to provide for their sustenance and became more and more dependent upon an economy, they weren't in control of that economy. And who was in, in control of the economy? Well, the government, you know, ultimately would, would have to provide subsidies and so forth and, and to, to cushion them somehow from the fluctuations of the market. And so they saw that state control was, was increasing as a result of this, and that was part of the impetus for coming over and, and, and really reestablishing an old way of life in a, in a new land. And so in early America, you would have seen the same situation here as you did there in, in pre-industrial England. Uh, most people were uh, worked their own land. Money was periodically used, but it, they were not dependent upon money for their, their survival. Um, you know, the, uh, and, and really that's what they felt made them free. They, they, they defined freedom as not having to depend on anyone or anything else to meet their basic needs. And so they weren't in a hurry to go towards that system that they were coming out of in England. The earliest days of, of the founding of this country, really on through the uh, antebellum period up to the Civil War, were kind of marked by this central conflict. And this conflict was between, anybody know who these, these guys are? Everybody knows who Jefferson is. Hamilton, good. Yes, there we go. Yeah, the Federalists, Alexander Hamilton, the Federalists, and the Democratic Republicans is, is what Jefferson's group. So just in case we, I'm not going <laughs> to, we'll avoid going, crossing into party lines here. So the Democratic Republicans. But so, so the, 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 the argument really between these two guys is really what marked the, the founding of this country um, for, 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 for most of its history. So I'll just characterize it briefly. Hamilton was in favor of a central bank. And he was actually George Washington's uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and he was instrumental in forming the first uh, bank of the United States. He did not have a problem with the system that was going on there in England. He didn't, he didn't have a problem with that per se. Um, what he had a problem with was the fact that it wasn't an, an American system. He didn't want to be under their control. And so what he was essentially advocating is that we just replicate that system in the United States. And so he was an advocate for a strong uh, national bank and, and, and even, even the process of industrialism. Um, Jefferson didn't quite see it that way. Jefferson felt like that uh, civil liberties were at risk, and he had already begun to see the writing on the wall there in England. Um, he wasn't so much opposed to banks, but the paper money system that had taken hold there, he saw that really what happened is it uh, more or less began to displace people from their land, pull people out of an agrarian way of life, and fill, funnel all the money into a wealthy elite. And so he, he worried about the consequences to human freedom of a, of a money-based system, okay? Uh, what he was advocating for was essentially an agrarian way of subsistence living. Now, just to be fair, he wasn't strictly advocating a, a self-sufficient subsistence uh, agriculture. He did see America as having a role uh, as an exporter uh, exporting agriculture and so forth, but 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 that even that economy, he felt like would be based in self-sufficient farms and subsistence agriculture. It was essentially that Jeffersonian agrarian vision of America that predominated for the first 60 years or so of this country and on uh, until the Civil War. Uh, but it wasn't the Civil War, I don't think, that really marked the turning point in this country. I think that was more of an expression of something that had already come to pass. The war that really was the turning point in America's shift from an agriculture to an industrial culture happened 50 years before the Civil War 
it was the War of 1812. It's a, a lesser-known war, but, but a very significant one. Um, if you try to read about this war and determine quickly who won the war or what it was fought over, you're going to have a hard time finding a straight answer on that. Uh, both England and America claimed on some level to have won the war. Um, it seemed to mostly have to do with uh, perceived maritime infractions on the part of England against American ships, and then it had a lot to do also with expansion, America's expansion into the territories that are now Canada. It, it's, people refer to it as the Second Revolutionary War. It was the first war where America had to defend itself against a foreign invader, and that was effectively England. Um, so, but what happened here with this war, even though it's not clear who won, I mean, England did temporarily at least prevent uh, the expansion of, of the American colony, certainly into Canada. But I think what ended up happening was much worse than that. Um, they, they really awoke a sleeping giant that would go on to crush them in another altogether different kind of war, and that was the War of Industrialism. And so uh, very soon after this war, America actually became the leader, uh, the, the industrial leader of the world, uh, and took that, took that title from England. What happened there is kind of characterized in this one kind of skirmish or battle that took place on Lake Ontario, which for, for obvious reasons was, was pivotal in that fight for Canada. But they called it the Shipbuilders' War. And what happened is they were compete, America was competing against this British Royal Navy that had all this firepower at its expense and disposal. And so they just kept bringing, each side kept bringing new ships onto the lake in an effort to try to one-up the other one. And it became this industrial race is what ended up happening. And even though it kind of ended in a stalemate, something became clear at that point to the, the, certainly the leaders of this country is that if we are going to compete against nations like Britain, if we're ultimately going to even defend ourselves as a nation, we're going to have to industrialize. Uh, and if we're going to have to industrialize, that means a strong central bank and, and a strong uh, tariff and a national debt and all of that that goes along with it. And so one of the saddest quotes, well, before I get to this, this is kind of a, this is a pretty striking visual from the, the War of 1812. They, the British burned the White House down. And I think it kind of paints a picture, really. I mean, they, they rebuilt it, but whatever that had previously represented, what was rebuilt in its place was it was a completely different country uh, than existed before that. Um, but the quote that gives me goosebumps every time I read it, Jefferson, this is 1814 that he said that he wrote this, uh, two years after the War of 1812, and he was writing it about their conflict with England. He said, our enemy, England, has indeed the consolation of Satan on removing our first parents from paradise. From a peaceful and agricultural nation, he makes us a military and a manufacturing one. He saw something serpentine in all of this. Uh, and and I, in a bit, I'm going to get into maybe why that would be. But ultimately what happened from there is that the craftsman and the farmer ceased to exist, at least in terms of the predominant culture. Um, the craftsmen, up to that point, just like in England, were primarily concerned with meeting the needs of their family and their communities. Well, when merchants became their primary customers, they were interested in what, was going, what they were going to be able to sell the most of in the open market. And so craftsmen began to, to mass produce on a small scale the same products continually. Uh, they became specialists. Well, that lasted about as long as it took factories to make the same products for a lot less money, a lot faster, of a little bit lesser quality, but people were willing to accept that. Uh, and pretty soon, those craftsmen themselves that had kind of sought after that economic gain and, and, and efficiency through mass production ended up having to go into the factories, the drudgery of factory life themselves. 
they became extinct. Um, the same thing happened to the American farmer, essentially. They, uh, and this had to do even with the craftsmen, but you know, they, they kind of saw this opportunity that we can just you know, figure out what kind of food is most in demand, and we can just grow a lot of that. And then we can make enough money doing that to be able to use money to purchase our essentials. And so they kind of, it was like a dangling carrot, if you will. They saw the, 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 the life that was held out in front of them and promised to them through economy, and they began to seek after it. Even though they remained rooted in a traditional kind of a rural way of life, there was something about that urban economic system that had a pull on them. And that really became the birth of agribusiness. Farming became an industry for the first time and, and not something that was primarily a means to, to self-sufficiency. Uh, and monocropping and all of that came, came forth from it. And so what that led to ultimately was the extinction of the farmer, uh, as, at least as America knew it for most of its, its origins. Uh, in 1902, George Washington Carver observed that it is not unusual to see so-called farmers drive to town weekly with their wagons empty and return with them full of various kinds of produce that should have been raised on the farm. This was already in 1902 that he said this. And unfortunately, his wisdom was not heeded. And uh, all the way into the Great Depression, all the way into the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, um, and suddenly this, this promise of a new kind of efficiency and economic freedom and, and, and luxury and escape from drudgery became one of the most cataclysmic events of human misery that the, the country had ever seen to that point. And so they realized that they had been sold a bill of goods, um, but, but they realized it in many cases too late. Now, I, I gave a disclaimer at the beginning. We are a Christian community. And uh, I want to share a couple of scriptures here that I think might make this even more relevant to those of us who are believers. But do you think God was surprised at the consequences and effects of industrialism? When, when God created man and woman, what kind of culture did he place them in? He placed them in a, in a, in a garden. He placed them in an agriculture. And you could say, well, that was just because that's all that existed at the time. or, Well, but we see that trend throughout the Bible. We see that when Abraham was, was immersed in an, in an urban civilization of Ur, in order for God to create a people, he did what? He called them out of the city and, and, and into uh, the country. Uh, what about Moses? When, when he took Moses and the children of Israel that were in Egypt and called them out of that culture, okay? And you can see it reverse. When, uh, in order to, to bring judgment upon Israel later, he took them out of the promised land and into Babylon, into captivity in an urban civilization. So I don't think it was just because that's all there happened to be at the time of man's creation. I think there was something in the culture of an agriculture. I mean, we think about uh, a plant, the culture of a plant. Uh, all the elements of that culture combine to determine whether that plant will thrive and live or whether it will wither and die. You know, soil, wind, temperature, pests, disease, uh, moisture, all of this plays uh, a part in determining the health of that plant. And I think if we view culture that same way, we can say that, that the Lord knew, and, I, and I'm not saying our, our community began in the Lower East Side of the biggest metropolis in this country, in New York City. And so I'm not saying that, that Christians can't live in the city or be called to the city or, or that somehow moving to the country is going to save us. I'm just saying that in terms of an ideal culture, it seems like God felt like an agriculture might be best for growing Christians. And the history of civilizations and secularization has bore witness to that. I found this quote from a historian named Michael Wood. He said, the very beginning of our ascent to civilization was the fall. When we tasted the fateful fruit of the tree of knowledge, the means by which we would become masters of the earth 
and yet eventually gain the power to destroy it and ourselves. What were the consequences of the fall? I think it's what the Lord speaks to, to Adam is important to this topic. He starts off when Adam transgresses the one limit that God placed upon him in the garden. He was given the whole thing abundantly to, 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 to live and to, to eat of freely, and yet there was one limit, and he transgressed that limit. And in response to that, God said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. And then he goes on and says, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And I always thought, when I first read that passage, that the curse was punitive. It was something that was designed to punish Adam and Eve for having disobeyed God. But when he says, cursed is the ground for your sake, it indicates maybe that it was something more restorative in nature. If you think about it, what Adam did to sin was transgress the one limit that God had placed upon it. Have any of you attempted to grow food in this room? I know a lot of us have. Anybody who has knows that uh, shortly after you begin that endeavor on any kind of serious level, you come face to face with the reality that you are not God. <laughs> Fair? <laughs> it, it becomes abundantly clear that you are not God. But it's cold outside. I don't want to milk the cow. It's freezing. It's wet. It's this. It's that. I've done everything. I've, I've planted it just like last year, and it's not coming up this year. If this is what you're depending on for your sustenance, there's something in that inherently that reminds you that you are, you are submitted to the times and the seasons and, and, and the rhythms of the earth. You're submitted to that. You're dependent upon God. And if something doesn't come up out of the ground, there's only one place to appeal to. And that's to the one that brings forth life. And so what way, what better way to remind us of our limited place in, in God's wonderful order than to put this curse upon us and say, you know, I'm going to bring you back into relationship with me through this way of life. And, but it didn't take long for men to lose sight of that. Adam's son was a tiller of the ground, it says. His son Cain. He was a tiller of the ground. We don't know that he was grumbling about the curse, but there's pretty good indication by his actions later that he was. We know that he offered up a sacrifice to God along with his brother Abel, and that God did not deem that sacrifice to be acceptable. And so, for the first time, in human history at least, envy and competition entered into the picture. Cain was jealous that his brother's sacrifice was accepted, and so he killed him. Uh, French historian or sociologist René Girard says that every civilization from that time forward has borne the mark of Cain, has been marked by that spirit of envy and competition that we saw come forth. I, I think all of, all of the history of civilization that has occurred since that time is represented in microcosm in that story. It says that after Cain murdered his brother, the Lord pronounced a curse upon him, and in rebellion against God and against that curse, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and he conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So what does he do as soon as God places this curse upon him? But go and initiate. That's what the name Enoch means. Enoch means initiation. So he goes out and initiates a new kind of culture where he can somehow at least convince himself that he is not limited by God, a place where he can come out from under those restraints of agriculture and enter into a civilization marked by this, this envy and competition, what Girard refers, refers to as mimetic rivalry, this desire to have what those around us have. 
And that began to mark all of the culture. What was the lie in the garden? You can be as God. That was the lie in the garden. You can be as God. That was the enticement. Well, if we look at the history of civilizations and urban culture, they say that they're really essentially human uh, immortality projects. They've always been man's effort to come out from under the restraints and limitations of God and to somehow create a, a culture and a world where they can be their own God. They don't have to submit to those givens and those limitations. David Landis from Harvard spoke approvingly of industrialism, science, and technology when he said that the industrialization of the world proceeds, this world which has never been ready to accept universally any of the universal faiths offered for its salvation is apparently prepared to embrace the religion of science and technology without reservation. Man's capacity to know and do is infinite. We have the age-old heresy of man's worship of himself. And he said that that primary motivating driving force behind man's reaching for civilization was the ancient hubris, the pride that the proverb says goes before destruction. Rome began kind of the same way. Many people don't realize, but, but, but the, the Roman Empire was built on the backs of yeoman farmers. The revenue of the Roman Empire was 90% agriculture. That may come as a surprise to some. Uh, but in 410, this, I'm speaking now of the, of the fall of the city of Rome, which preceded the fall of Rome by about 50 years, but 55 years. But in 410, for the first time in eight centuries, what was referred to as the eternal city was breached by a foreign invader. And life as they knew it was turned upside down. The, the tombs of the emperors were ransacked. Ashes spread all over the place. There was raping and murdering and pillaging. Uh, one survivor, the Roman monk, Pelagius, said, Where were the privileges of birth and the distinctions of quality? Were not all ranks and decrees leveled at that time and promiscuously huddled together? Every house was a scene of misery and equally filled with grief and confusion. The slave and the man of quality were in the same circumstances, and everywhere the terror of slaughter and death was the same. Unless we may say the fright made the greatest impression on those who had the greatest interest in living. It was cataclysmic. And what happened there in Rome and we could, I could spend three hours talking about all the, but, but I, I do want to focus on, on one aspect of Rome's fall that relates to our topic. Uh, as, a, as an empire expands, its need for what also expands? Resources. Food? They need to eat. And so as the empire expands, the need for food expands. And as I said, agriculture was a, a huge predominant part of the Roman economy. Well, Rome at that, at that time did not have a full-time military force. And so who would they use in seasons of war to expand the empire, defend the empire, but these farmers, these yeoman farmers. And so they would go off and fight in war in one season and come back and till the land in another season. But as the empire began to expand more and more, they were gone for longer periods of time, and they would often come back, and their land would be swallowed up by wealthy landowners and others. And so they have no land to return to. Soon they became a full-time military, a full-time army. Uh, and as, as they did so, these farmlands went vacant and were given over to weed and to swamps and to marsh, and there, there became a real agricultural crisis. Uh, more and more people began to move into the cities. Uh, they went there to try and get on the dole, which was their welfare system. And as that happened, the taxes increased. And so even those that were farming couldn't afford to do so anymore because of the taxes. So there was a real crisis that took place at that point in time. And by the time Alaric and the Visigoths broke into the city of Rome and later 
uh, it collapsed. They welcomed the invasion of the barbarians because civilization as they knew it was not something they found enticing any longer. They, they had come to realize that this, this new way of life, all the freedoms that they had been offered, all the luxury that had been promised to them was a bill of goods. And they wanted no part of it. And uh, once it fell, they actually viewed the, as I, uh, the, the barbarians as liberators. Uh, they wanted no part of it. And, and when the glue, that false glue of Roman imperialism that had bound them together for so many years dissipated, they had no desire to return to that. They, 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 they looked instead to a return to an, an agrarian culture, a more decentralized culture. And most of all, they looked back to Christianity as a possibility. And, uh, you know, the, the, I think I've got a quote here. I'll read it quickly. One historian said that whatever is one, one's belief in that uh, age, Christian religion was the only power that remained unaffected by the collapse of civilization, by the loss of faith in social institutions, in cultural traditions, and by the loss of hope in life. So Christianity during that time, right after the fall, became a, a force of hope in the midst of despair. It became an answer for the people. Uh, the mainstream view of the Dark Ages, it was this period where, there, where nothing really moved forward. There was no science. There was no uh, innovations of any kind. People were more or less you know, just kept in, the, in this, this fog of religious superstition. And then the Renaissance came, and then the Enlightenment, and suddenly people's eyes were opened. But that's actually not true at all. Uh, there were incredible innovations in, in the field of agriculture, which they came to realize is what really mattered. They needed to eat. And so things like the plow and all kinds of farming technology became, became, uh, came to the forefront. Um, the economy shifted from a decentralized economy to a more self-sufficient uh, economy. Um, science certainly did exist, but it really had more to do with the production of food and with farming. Um, after the collapse of Rome, monasteries began to arise all over that part of Europe, and, and they really served as lights throughout the darkness. These monasteries were, by and large, self-sufficient uh, villages. The Benedictine monasteries in particular uh, were communities where all needs could be met within the community. They had workshops and gardens and, and water mills, and they began to really bring Christian culture back to the heart of rural society at that time. And uh, these, these monasteries, uh, you know, the, the swamplands and the marshes, that had been given over to pest and disease uh, throughout the time of the Roman Empire. They began to reclaim these. They began to cultivate them, manage the forests, manage the pastures, and really bring life back to the culture. And some of them even became schools of agriculture. They began to say, we don't just want to reclaim this way of life for ourselves, but we want to teach it to those that are, that are looking for hope and looking for a way out. And so they would teach things like beekeeping and farming and orcharding and vineyarding and try to bring these self-sufficient skills back to this culture that had been left in destitution and hopelessness and to bring a light back through this new kind of system and this new kind of economy. And that was what brought hope back to Europe. And this is, this is the culture that persisted in some form for a thousand years after the fall of Rome, really until the point of the Renaissance when economy began to come back to the forefront and bring this process through to, uh, to its full culmination. Um, they viewed their work as worship. It wasn't drudgery. It was a form of worship, a form of worship to God. Uh, I'll read one last quote there before I wrap up. Uh, a historian wrote of these monasteries, they were vital outposts of this ark of refuge giving the whole of Europe a network of model centers for breeding livestock, centers for scholarship, spiritual fervor, the art of living, readiness for social action, in a word, advanced civilization that emerged from the chaotic waves of surrounding barbarity. They were cities set upon a hill. I'll just end with this. After a, a lifetime of study 
about this process that I laid out earlier. Uh, one historian said that in order for human relationships, in order for a society that is rooted in these voluntary human relationships to, to endure, something about those relationships has got to be sacralized. It, they've got to become transcendent on some level. There's got to be something outside of them that binds them together and, and enables them and, and empowers them to endure the pulls of economy, to endure and, and resist the pulls of, of urban culture and civilization and all of the false promises that are offered. There's got to be something transcendent. And he said what generally has, has served that purpose has been what he called non-coercive, transcendently ordered religion. Religion means, if you look at its literal, uh, the, the meaning of the, the word derives from the word ligare, which is, uh, we get liability, ligaments, um, religion. It's that which binds together. Society means companion, friend, or follower of love. And so we get quite a picture there that if we are going to have a culture of cooperation as opposed to a culture of competition, that the first step is for us to come together in relationships that are transcendently ordered, to seek after that power that will bind us together as together we follow after love. And that is what's going to hold us together. Only those whose love for God is strong enough that they're not tempted by these false promises and these pulls, but their care is primarily for their neighbors. They're focused on the needs around them and say, you know, together, together we can do it. You know, we don't, we don't have to follow after these temptations and these desires. Together we can have a life, a shared life together in God. And history has shown those are the only societies that have ever been able to endure. We have a song that we sing here, and I'll just close with it. It says, love will hold us together, make us a shelter to weather the storm. And I'll be my brother's keeper so the whole world will know that we're not alone. This is the first day of the rest of your life. And I would just close by saying that as we look around and, and enjoy the fair that's around us, this has been our effort over the last 40 years to try and reverse this process, to try and reclaim an alternative culture based in human relationships and care for one another. And I know that we've got a long way to go, but we, we, we feel like it can be done. We feel like it is being done. And uh, the answer for anybody who feels the hopelessness of being immersed in this industrial culture and, and all, of, all of the misery and oppression and, and loneliness and isolation and fragmentation that has ensued is to begin to look towards the one who unites all of us together and, and find those brothers and sisters that we can come into a culture of cooperation with and begin to reverse this process. 